podcast where I get to meet and learn from people in the field of inclusion in its broadest sense that inspire me. I hope they'll inspire you too. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Richard Jackson. Richard is internationally recognized as a pioneer in the nascent field of universal design for learning. He first brought the UDL framework for an inclusive curriculum to Boston College in 1999. Over the years, he has worked with students and colleagues to identify teaching practices that support access to general education curriculum, examine assistive and universally designed technologies that facilitate student learning, and prepare teachers and leaders in inclusive education. Most recently, Richard has sought to expand UDL leadership preparation and support beyond the United States by co-founding INCLUDE, a center without walls that functions virtually as a community of practice among stakeholders committed to advancing inclusion worldwide. Richard, a serendipitous email from CAS brought us together in 2019 when you kindly offered to host me in Boston College as part of my Fulbright Award. Two years and a COVID pandemic later, we finally got to share that office in BC where your passion for inclusion and collaboration was infectious. I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today to speak with you more about this passion and where it's leading you next. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you today, Mags. Thank you very much for, enjoying, for inviting me. Um, right. Off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and what absolutely. it was that inspired you to explore UDL as a framework for inclusive curriculum in Boston College and beyond. I think it's important to start with um, defining myself as a, a person with, uh, with disabilities, because that really has had everything to do with um, how my life uh, has formed over the years and uh, what I do in my career and what I've done at uh, Boston College. Uh, I was born with uh, severe visual impairment, legally blind, uh, and um, a condition called corneal dystrophy that, that also has uh, connected with it a uh, sensory neural hearing loss. It's an extremely rare uh, disease. Uh, it's genetic. And in my family, it's just very interesting that uh, my brother and my sister also had uh, the same uh, constellation of vision and hearing problems. Uh, so we all grew up, uh, went through special education programs and um, with, with severe visual impairment, legal blindness. We kind of would see at 10 feet what typically sighted people see at 200 feet. And then the hearing loss uh, came on uh, in the, our mid-20s uh, and progressed. It's a sensory neural hearing loss. Uh, about 15 years ago, uh, I started uh, wearing binaural hearing aids uh, that um, really, uh, really helped my hearing. And then I also had uh, corneal transplants and lens implants that uh, restored my childhood vision. Now, that sounds really complicated. Uh, the, 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 big, the big message is that I was born with severe visual impairment. Uh, over the years, it progressed to nearly total blindness. Uh, with the corneal and lens surgery, I could get my childhood vision back, um, which allowed me to read print with magnification. And then um, the sensory neural hearing loss uh, progressed over the last 15 years. So um, 
to sort of weave this into what it all meant uh, to me educationally, uh, I was uh, born at a time uh, prior to the special education law in the state. So uh, I went uh, to a special class just for visually impaired students. So did my brother and sister who followed me. And then following the special class, there was a resource program in middle school, grades seven through nine. And then there was full immersion in uh, public high school. Um, in my case, uh, the special class was a very isolating experience. Uh, one teacher for 16, 18 students on multi-grade levels wonderful teacher with an impossible job. And when I was integrated gradually in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I had a tremendous, uh, tremendous difficulty um, acknowledging my impairment and trying to fit in academically. Um, I resorted to uh, expressions of misbehavior. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess uh, I struggled severely uh, through uh, through school uh, in my in my high school year. I had two junior years, um, repeated my my eleventh grade, and um, I was uh, all set to quit school and um, work in a in a car wash where I had a job on weekends, and uh, I got fired from the car wash because the, the owner told me one morning that uh, I couldn't see those hubcaps well enough to keep them clean. And I was really of no, no use to him. And at that point, I, I felt pretty desperate and uh, started trying to follow the advice I was getting from counselors and my, my parents. And I really tried to apply myself uh, in the public fully inclusive system but it was it was a it was a struggle to catch up. Uh, I went to Perkins School for the Blind as a residential school for the last quarter of my second junior year, and then all of my uh, final year in high school. So what that all really means in terms of, of my formation is that I I had six years in a substantially separate classroom. I had three years in a resource setting with uh, integration in the middle school years and then full immersion in high school and then full immersion in a, in a residential school for the blind. Uh, tremendous insight through all of, the, all of those years. I would say that um, my failures in school um, had everything to do with my own struggles with identity as a person with visual impairment. I believe that um, the experience in the substantially separate environment uh, taught me that if you have a disability, you don't belong and you're not wanted and you're looked at um, very negatively uh, by the broader society. So I sought to, uh, a way to fit in with uh, my peers and, um, and uh, reject myself as a student with, with disability. It really wasn't until the Perkins experience when I met other students with visual impairments more severe than my own, uh, and they were, they were doing splendidly in school, but they were socially isolated. Uh, I barely got into college, 
um, after this experience and uh, encountered mentors uh, and uh, that that just made a tremendous difference in my life. Um, so these these were my early early experiences that uh, kind of defined me as a person with a disability. I think I think the learning there that is today that I'm an avid uh, inclusionist. I think that uh, we we have to find ways uh, to uh, include students with disabilities so that they have peer-to-peer uh, -peer contact uh, in authentic uh, classroom and school-based uh, settings. Uh, and the, the most valuable experiences of my childhood really were with my neighborhood peers, with, with my buddies. Uh, it was really school that made me stick out and look different. It was really school uh, that, um, that uh, caused my, my challenges. That led me to my my philosophy. And when you were in school, Richard, it, it would have been differentiation at the time. So it would have been that deficit approach. Um, and you you talked about identities there and the difference between owning your identity and having a category of need assigned to you, I think, has a very strong influence on children and learners and how included they feel or are invited to feel in a learning environment. There's, there's no, um, there's a psychologist uh, from Connecticut, uh, Richard Lavoie, who talks, counsels parents and students with learning disabilities. And uh, he, he often talks about when, when you ask uh, uh, adults with learning disabilities, if they could if they could change anything in their own school experience, you might you might think they'd say, I, I wish I got a better education. No, they, they really say, I wish I had better peer relations. I wish I had more friends. I wish I felt more um, that I belonged more. And school um, with people your own age, it can it can make you feel welcome or it can make you feel uh, uninvited and uh, different from every everyone else. So and did that a, change for you in college, Richard? Changed ra in, in, a, in a radical way, because in, in college, it wasn't, it was a matter of, it didn't really matter how you, how you learned. You could learn with, at your own style. And, uh, but you had to pass the test and you had to write the papers. Uh, and there was a very, very little, very little frequent feedback. Uh, on top of that, I um, so you didn't have daily work that somebody was checking on uh, with you. And uh, in, in school, you know, you had to be able to copy from the board. You had to be able to write on narrow line paper. Uh, you had to be able to take tests within certain time limits. You had to be able to read what's on the chalkboard. But if you had if you had accessible uh, textbooks. And if you had um, uh, the uh, uh, really good lecturers and a good a good system for remembering what was presented in the classroom, then really all you had to do is pass the test and do well. And uh, this was an environment where I, I felt I, I could learn my own way. And, um, and when I needed help, I would go individually to meet with professors. And um, that made a huge difference, being able to, to accept mentoring and guidance 
from individual professors. And by the time I was a sophomore, I was on the Dean's list and I was doing very well. And that continued throughout. And I, I felt um, that I was at the, the upper quartile in all my courses. And um, I felt uh, acceptance and a sense of belonging uh, from my peers in college. Now that's, you know, that's back in the late sixties. And I, I have to say that uh, college was uniquely positive for me. Um, I, I think students with disabilities continue to struggle in many college environments. Although uh, for, for, for most um, situations improved enormously. And Richard, if we if we jump from the 1960s, where you had up until then a mixed bag of experiences around your education and inclusion to 1999, you are a professor in Boston College. And not only do you believe in learning your own way, but from our conversation, I know that at that time you believed in providing opportunities for learners to learn their own way. What brought you to there and, and what was the impetus for bringing UDL in particular to Boston College and designing or being part of that inclusive curriculum campus philosophy? Well, I, I was at uh, Boston College uh, in 79. That's when my appointment began. But from 79 to 99, I was essentially running programs to prepare professionals to work with blind, visually impaired, and multiply disabled students. And um, I was at this, always at the forefront of technology use for, for working with blind uh, children and, and, and working trying to improve my own uh, efficiency and productivity. So uh, technology, I was getting a reputation in, a, in the area of assistive technology. And I was invited uh, in the, in the mid nineties, about 90, 98 to, um, to a meeting at CAST where, the, where I was exposed to the, um, the universal design for learning framework made a couple of presentations it just resonated with uh, my own uh, my own training in about the affordances I, I really believe that the difficulties we experience as people with disabilities has everything to do with uh, the the affordances in the in our environment and curb cuts would be a great example you know the if you if you if you didn't have curb cuts uh, people would, with wheelchairs would never get out of their homes. And so uh, I was always one for looking at the learning environment and the um, physical environment and product design just to see, well, what are, the, what are the potential affordances that could make life easier for people that, that uh, develop differently? So I just resonated. It was like magic uh, the way I, I came to, like many people, like you, Mags, you know, people get exposed to the UDL framework and they go, wow, now that's a big idea. And so in 1999, um, there was a, a law passed uh, in the United States that made all the difference for students with disabilities. It wasn't just a law that uh, required students um, receive a special education to target their special needs, but they also, the law also required that they have access to the same benefits that all other students have. So it's, it's the general curriculum. So the, 
the law required that students, no matter how in, involved they are with disability, they have to have access to, they have to be able to participate with, in rather, and then they also have to um, participate in um, assessment systems to demonstrate what they're learning from their curriculum access. Well, it occurred to me and to colleagues at CAS that there was only one way to accomplish this, and that was to, to adopt the UDL framework. At that time, the framework only had, had three principles, were no guidelines. And so um, we, uh, bought, I brought Boston College into a partnership with uh, Harvard Law School, the Council for Exceptional Children, uh, headed up by CAS to found the uh, National Center on Accessing the General Curriculum. And we spent uh, five years uh, developing guidance for the nation to implement the UDL framework with the sole purpose of increasing access to the general curriculum. So this was in 99, and I was uh, teaching special education courses at Boston College. And I brought the framework into, uh, into Boston College and started preparing my students uh, to adopt the framework. And then at, at CAST, um, we did uh, training with, our, with my faculty colleagues on the UDL framework. In 2005, I got uh, an award from Boston College on my uh, course developments uh, following the UDL framework. And then in uh, 19 and in, in 2009, uh, the the UDL framework was scaling up around the nation, uh, and um, it occurred to me that uh, to move the framework uh, into a mass implementation stage, it would require leadership. I looked at leadership competencies in the United States and uh, the competencies for special education directors differed markedly from the competencies for general education uh, administrators like principals and superintendents and state directors and so forth. So I proposed uh, a postdoctoral program to prepare uh, leaders uh, to try to figure out what really, how, how would we uh, build a core of leaders that that would uh, that would help lead education, the same education, one standards-based education for all students. And I, uh, I successfully obtained uh, the most prestigious uh, grant of my career. Uh, so I brought on uh, over five years, uh, eight postdoctoral fellows. Uh, and also had, uh, they also enjoyed residency at CAS. So they were working alongside uh, CAS researchers and policy makers. Then they had access to professors at BC, uh, my colleagues. Uh, that was an incredibly successful program. Uh, they were talented people to begin with. Many of them are quite renowned uh, now. Uh, they were talented to begin with, but their, their work uh, and accomplishments since uh, 2009 have just been enormous, and it uh, it led me to th it led me to think that um, leadership uh, UDL was beginning to appear. I was noticing it was beginning to appear in different parts of the world, and uh, met a, a colleague uh, and was invited to uh, 
provide a chapter for a textbook on universal design for learning uh, in higher education from a global perspective. And I met uh, Sean Bracken and Katie Novak uh, invited me to submit a chapter. And uh, that brought me to Dublin uh, for a presentation, a book launch uh, at the uh, at, at the AHEAD conference in Dublin. I met uh, folks from all around Europe who were engaged in implementing UDL and just enthralled with the framework, you know, much the way uh, I was when I when I first uh, went to cast in 19 in the late 90s, uh, that this is there's no other way to do it. It just sort of wins, wins you over. And I, and I proposed to uh, Sean uh, that we establish this uh, international organization that would be uh, devoted to promoting leadership for broad scale implementation of UDL. Uh, I had been working on this uh, collaboratory idea. A collaboratory is a, is a center without walls uh, that would work virtually uh, and uh, cut across many territories and many interests. I've been learning about uh, community of practice, uh, social learning theory from uh, Etienne uh, Wanger. And it, it just occurred to me that uh, a center without walls, a collaboratory uh, would help scale up this idea of, of national leadership from the states uh, to, the, to, to a global level. So uh, we have established this, uh, include the International Collaboratory for Leadership and Universally Designed Education. Now that's a killer brand. Wouldn't you agree with that, Max? Absolutely, <laughs> so, and building momentum as well. <laughs> yes, it, it is. Uh, we've got um, a, a research, research activity and we've got uh, a monthly series of uh, professional development webinars. And these are all done through uh, Zoom. Uh, we're all getting quite good at Zoom webinars and we're all getting quite good at, uh, at engaging our, those, that, those that attend. The, the idea, it's important to, to, uh, to define really what Include is about. It's, it's not a top-down organization. It's, it's not a bottom-up organization. It is, it is a center without walls that um, brings together people that believe that all children, all people need to have an equal opportunity to learn. Uh, all people sort of internationalization of the, the educational imperative and carrying forward the belief that the only way for uh, people to have an equal opportunity to learn is to turn to the environment and see, well, what are we asking of students and what are we giving them as resources to support their learning and how are we allowing them to engage? Well, those are all the, the three principles of UDL. How do we bring people together? But we have to recognize that uh, in in different localities all over the world, like there are different contexts and different priorities, and people are at different stages of of development in terms of how they how they bring uh, people into an educational context. So we we propose the UDL framework as a guiding framework, but we help people look at where they are now. Where are they now in their in their learning? Context. And how can they get better at getting better in their world? 
well, if they use the UDL guidelines, they're going to they're going to implement uh, universal design for learning differently everywhere. But they're going to be working toward wider participation for all members of their society. So, but where the collaboratory kicks in is that they get to tell their stories uh, and uh, exchange their contexts uh, and learn from one another. So you can envision this, this big circle uh, with people on the periphery that are, are intrigued by UDL and then people in the center that are really highly knowledgeable and highly skilled with UDL implementation. And then, so there's this, this interaction from the periphery into the center. And then there's this interaction all around the periphery where people uh, find commonalities and they say, well, you know, I did this in, in Canada and, and this is something that would work in Sweden. And here's something uh, going on in Northern Ireland. Ireland, here's something in the UK, uh, Morocco, so <laughs> Brazil, we're kind of all over the world now. And people are embracing this, this, um, this, this inclusion imperative, uh, internationalization of education and uh, learning from one another. That's, that's the big dream for include. And, and I, I think I like from working with you over in Boston, I became very familiar with Include. And I think like there's two really important things that you brought up there was that it's not just about the the people with expertise. It's about those who are curious, who want to learn more, but it is contextual. So we all know, and we spoke about this, that like 95% of the UDL examples are based on the US standards and US curriculum. And what Include is doing um, by inviting in speakers is hearing what's happening in India or Brazil or places like that. And I know you have very strong and proactive feelings around global perspectives and I got I had the pleasure of auditing and speaking on your global per perspectives course in Boston College where do you see those global perspectives and inclusion and, and general education aligning well that's good general education meaning like the idea of one curriculum for all hmm. um, I'm, I'm committed to globalization but I I'm regard myself as an expert in UDL and an expert in how people learn and how people learn differently. But I'm, I'm not an expert on language or, uh, or uh, trans language uh, or uh, global, global uh, how cultures come together. That's where my include colleagues come in. So I often uh, de defer to Sean Bracken and, and, uh, other colleagues in, in include uh, about the global perspective. At Boston College, we started uh, the Global Perspectives Program for Education, and I teach the models and theories of, of instructional design uh, ending up in UDL as the framework in, in that course. And I'm, I'm encouraging and promoting uh, application uh globally to my students but i i i'm really still this uh guy from boston from a working class family uh continuing to learn about uh, uh people from all over the world so i, I guess i'm 
I, I see global citizenship, ideas of global citizenship expanding. I see the more we learn about uh, one another, it's almost like we've regarded separate nations as like special classes and we've had them, you know, th these are developing nations or like underdeveloped nations and these are poor people or these are strange people that do things differently. Um, and, um, and, and, and so now it, uh, it's, all, it's like including different cultures, including uh, different uh, modes of, of thinking and feeling and so forth from around the world. Each culture, each, each uh, nation has, loves their children and they have uh, hopes and aspirations for their children. And when kids learn differently, or do things differently, um, they, need, uh, they need a framework that will, will provide the flexibility and openness to, to, bring them, to bring them in so that they can fit into their society. So, so it's like, um, it's, it's just interesting. That's a, that just, just kind of occurred to me. That's a great analogy that um, growing up in the States with special classes and special schools and uh, pigeonholing people, that's kind of what, what we did in the world. You know, one country's better than the other. Um, I, think it's, I think we're at a much better time to think uh, of global citizenship and why it's in everybody's best interest uh, to be concerned about the well-being of, of all people everywhere. Absolutely. And, and that goes back to the whole, I suppose, cycle of leadership and learning that you, you can't have one without the other. And it goes back to UDL and that journey to expert learning or being the expert learner that isn't about mastery of a subject or a skill, but mastery of how we apply the skills yes. for learning we have to inclusion, to leadership, to global citizenship. Um, and that's, I think you right. captured that in include. I, I, I think that's, that's what, what we're about. We're, we all want to be expert at, at, uh, at learning how to share what we know and do and how to uh, help other people um, get better at getting better. I, I'm stealing that get better at getting better from uh, Anthony Breich here in the States. Uh, it's, a, it's an area of research called improvement science, where you, you decide uh, what it is you want to do to improve your practice. So no matter where people are in the world, they're teaching and they want to do, they want to teach better. Um, they, they want to get better at what they're doing. And UDL is the way to do it, but the way it'll be implemented uh, locally will differ. Like implementation of UDL in Morocco will look different than the implementation of UDL in Canada will look different in Ireland, will look different in, in Brazil. But it'll have the same uh, result of widening participation from students and um, increasing opportunity uh, to learn and grow and develop that expertise at learning, becoming the best they can be within their own context. Absolutely. And then just in terms, because you, you are a, a teacher educator, you, you are spending your days in Boston College, bringing up the next generation of teachers. And, and I know you're giving them all the opportunities to learn in a way that suits them best. But if you were to give them one piece of advice on your very first day with them, 
on equity and inclusion, what would that be? To, a, to an aspiring young teacher. Yes. Yeah, I, I would say set your expectations high. I love that. I, 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 I um, you know, I, I worked with students uh, uh, at Boston College on a project uh, about going back about 15 years. And uh, they were frustrated about um, not able to really improve uh, urban learners uh, in, in, in their activities. And, uh, and when asked why, uh, they would say, well, some people just lack the capacity. And I thought, at that point in my, in my career, I said, you know, I'm going to take the word capacity completely out of my language. And I, I make this statement that UDL says nothing about capacity. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the only thing we, we say about UDL and individual differences is that human variability is so extensive that, that we can't measure it well. We don't measure, and, and when we try to uh, match practice with aptitude, we end up stigmatizing and uh, sectioning off people. So it's this expectation thing. It's like getting to know individual learners, having them relate to other age mates and being open to what what they can do when just given the exposure, the coaching, the opportunity. So expectations, that's what it's all about. It really I, went to, I went to special classes because I wasn't expected to be able to function in, in regular classes. Absolutely. And it, <laughs> it, it, it goes back to that presuming competence. And if, if you don't know your students, so in your case, but I, I have a young boy in front of me who is deaf, who is blind. So I'm just deciding he's not going to be able to read, write or learn instead of asking myself, what has this, this young boy got to give? What's inside of him? And I think if we just shift the way we think about that, we're going yes. to have happier learners in our environments. And we're going yeah. to have, and I'm going to use the word high achievers not in the sense that we use it here, but we yes. will see a lot more high achievers if we yes. actually give them the opportunity. And Richard, you talked about variability in the same sentence as talking about not talking about capacity, not, not limiting yes. them. But a lot of people find the word variability scary in that they're going, how can I plan for this? Ah, how do you plan for variability? Well, I, I think it's the it's the 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 principles of UDL that that led to the discovery of the term variability. It's sort of like we uh, we have multiple means of uh, of accessing the curriculum, the content. You know, like uh, getting at uh, text, getting at uh, videos, getting getting at uh, demonstrations. And we, we do that because human variability is so great, we can't prescribe it. We can't say, well, you, you have this class, so you're going to have to listen. You have this class, uh, you're going to have to uh, use your eyes. So it's, it's really a matter of having all these options available 
and uh, uh, creating, I call it creating the affordances, opening up the environment so that engagement with learning uh, is, is possible. And then it's the same with, with other principles as well. You know, there's many ways to demonstrate what you know and can do. Yeah. But if your curriculum dictates that you have to pass a, 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 a true false or, you know, a multiple choice test, and that's the only option available, then if, if that doesn't match your where you are on variability, you're just out of luck. Absolutely. And, and giving that giving that written test to you when you were in school wasn't going to show your competencies in any shape or form if you weren't going to be able to read the test. No, in, in my experience, it was, uh, I, I would often give up. I can I remember having to uh, copy sentences out of uh, the Heath Handbook of English <laughs> and, uh, and, and write these on, down on a certain size paper and then having to correct them. And by the time I would get a third of the way into the activity, uh, my peers would be completely done and moved on with other, other assignments. So it was just, it was just onerous and a, a horrible punishing experience for me. And there were many other ways for me to learn uh, how, how to learn grammar at the time. Uh, oh. But those and activities were just not made available to me. And, and that is actually reducing engagement. I mean, there, there's no motivation for you to persist in that activity if it if it's creating a further gap between you and your peers. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think the I think in the future, and we're, we're starting to do this in many, many places that we won't all be following the same pace. Mm. And I hope that I hope that eventually we will move away from grade level expectations and we'll be working toward competencies uh, in a in a learning progression. There'll be a logical sequence and a developmental sequence to these competencies, but we'll be working with our peers toward the attainment of these competencies in very authentic ways. Uh, it's, it's the grade level expectations that, that really account for um, the feeling of failure and mm -hmm. boredom in school. Absolutely. For, for me, it's, it's like, you know, when you click on your, your GPS and you want your end destination, but it gives you route A, B or C and you can choose the route, whether you want to take the scenic route, or whether you want to pay the tolls, whatever it is. And for me, that is what an inclusive pathway to curriculum is and people getting there at their own pace at their own stage. Oh, ab absolutely. Uh, uh, for me, uh, I like to take I like to take the route that allows me to stop and reflect along the way. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else may want to race through it and get there as, as soon as possible. Get it done. Yeah. And, and it may even depend on where it is you're going, how quickly you want to get there or how much you want to stop and reflect. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Absolutely. Yes. And I think sometimes when we're focused on that grade element it's get there as quickly as possible which reduces the active learning that takes place yes it's the difference between a performance motive and and a mastery motive and Absolutely. You know, yeah and mastery working toward mastery at your own rate um feeling confident 
and and feeling uh, capable along the way. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Richard, I know we could go on and talk about this forever, and I think we already have a second conversation to be had in the future. But for now, we are coming to the end of our conversation. And I'm just wondering, do you have any resources for further independent learning that you would like to share with us today? Yes, I, I have a, a chapter from the book that I did with my uh, with uh, for con for for uh, Katie Novak and and uh, Sean Bracken, and it's a book on um, it's a chapter on how to uh, develop uh, uh, blended uh, learning uh, courses following the framework. And this this chapter was done with my uh, my last doctoral student, Scott Lipinski, just a wonderful uh, doctoral student colleague. And this was done before the pandemic. And um, in 2015, Scott and I began blending uh, my courses at BC. And when the pandemic hit, the courses were all on our learning management system. And the courses were all in accessible media and accessible uh, texts. And it was no no difficulty at all to transition from in-the-room instruction to to um, to uh, blend, to in to instruction on Zoom to remote learning, and the the point to this was that uh, many of my colleagues struggled when when they were forced to go to remote learning because their their content was not digitized and it was not accessible, and this was just a wonderful thing. Uh, just uh, this publication appeared just at the right time uh, to help uh, colleagues at Boston College and other people that were able to access this chapter uh, to implement uh, flexible designs and courses. Oh, so I, I'm, I'm happy to share that uh, chapter. And then I have another uh, a passion of mine is um, audio supported reading. Uh, from an information processing point of view. And I think that uh, we need to look carefully at what we mean by literacy and what we mean by reading and how technology uh, can just, just change the, the game completely uh, for student learning through text. And that's, this is a good chapter on how people in particular with visual impairment process information and can benefit from uh, bimodal uh, learning, whether it's in print and speech or braille and speech. Oh, super. I will make sure to get those links off you and put them up in the introduction that goes with this podcast. So thank you so much for that. And I'll also include, inc I will also include the link for include. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. So I will put that up there. Richard, before we finish, do you have any, any final words or pieces of advice that you would like to share with everyone? Uh, well, I, th I think that we, we all need to figure out who we are. Um, I, I'm strongly influenced by the self-determination literature. I, I've come to realize that there, there's really basically three goals for us in life, to be competent, uh, to, be, to connect with others uh, socially, um, 
and to be autonomous that is to to see ourselves as agents that we uh we have control of our lives and we have control over how others see us uh and for me it took me many many years to accept uh myself as a person with a disability there are social consequences for that uh, uh and but there are practical consequences when people understand you more in terms of your strengths and your capabilities as a person with disability so uh it's a it's a lifelong i think for all of us it's a lifelong conquest a lifelong pursuit to be authentic uh to be who we are uh and and see that see us as see ourselves as developing continuously and and learning as long as we live absolutely i that's i like that be competent connect with others socially and to be autonomous that 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 is the perfect ending i have to say um and on that note i will say goodbye to everyone listening and thank you so much for joining myself and richard for talking about all things inclusion and i hope you will join me again soon richard thank you so much again for sharing with us today thank you so much Megs.